This podcast is brought to you by N by Neutralite, exclusively from Amway. This novel new brand is an experiential wellness line created to empower your mind and enrich your body to help you be more you. Because you are unstoppable, and N products will help you meet your goals every day. Because with N by Neutralite, you got this. Follow us on Instagram at Neutralite US. It's inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports, the college football podcast that gives fans the inside scoop on who's moving up, who's moving down, and what's happening with all the big news of the week. Dan Wolken and Paul Meyerberg will take you through this week's poll, interview coaches, and break down the sport like nobody else, starting now. Welcome back to another edition of the Inside the Amway Coaches Poll podcast. Presented by USA Today Sports, I'm Dan Walken, joined as always by Paul Meyerberg. Later in the show, Doc Holliday, the head coach of the Marshall Thundering Herd, the undefeated Marshall Thundering Herd, will join us. It'll be good to get his perspective on the season so far. They're having a terrific run of things early. But, Paul, let's jump right into Saturday's action and, of course, the Amway Coaches Poll for this week. Clemson is still number one. They're not quite as strong of a number one as they were. They've lost some votes to Alabama. Ohio State's getting a little bit of support as well. But Clemson had a scare. They do not have Trevor Lawrence, uh, either for this week coming up against Notre Dame or for last Saturday against uh, Boston College. They got down 18 points. They clawed their way back in. Freshman quarterback. It was uh, a little bit... More exciting, I think, than they would have hoped. But ultimately, you know, once Clemson got into a rhythm, once uh, DJ got comfortable at the controls, I thought they were fine. And I think that they're going to be fine moving ahead, even if Trevor Lawrence can't play. What did you make of Clemson's semi-scare against BC? Are we going to go with DJ? Is that what we're going we're gonna to go with? Or do you want to give it a shot? Boy, it's going to take me a couple weeks. I think I got it. Uh, right. I've been doing this in my head for about the last 72 hours. Ui Ungalale. Ui Ungalale. Ui Ungalale. That's pretty close. Yeah, I think that's about yeah. it. Yeah, and, and it's a, he's – we're going to have to learn it, um, just like we did with uh, Tango Vailoa, because he's going to be a spectacular football player. And, and like, we want to talk about the game. And Clemson gets scared every once in a while. They have these moments, and it happens – Every team, every once in a while, gets into a, into a dogfight. I thought the takeaway was the way that he played specifically, um, because I thought he was spectacular and he wasn't a hundred percent, but uh, he played like the five star that he is or was. And um, yeah, like we didn't. We'll talk about the Notre Dame game in the next segment, but I have a lot of faith in what DJ Uwe Ungalale uh, can do against Notre Dame going forward because he was that good. Well, yeah, look, when Clemson got down. 28 to 10. I didn't think it was because of anything he did. Now there was a bad exchange between him and Travis Etienne and it ends up, you know, going for a touchdown. Like there was some things that I think were probably just based on the fact that he has not done a lot of practicing with the ones uh, this season, but really early on, it was their defense that was a little bit problematic. And the fact that the BC was playing with a lot of energy, they were playing pretty well, but yeah, like no one's going to be 100% perfect as you go through the season. No one's going to get through it without uh, somewhat of a, a, a fight. And really the third quarter and the fourth quarter, Clemson completely locked that team down defensively. 
And yeah, I mean, look for a freshman quarterback, uh, you're talking about 30 of 41, 342 yards, a couple touchdowns, didn't throw an interception. I don't, I don't think you could really ask for any more. No, definitely not. And we had Jeff Hackley on the, on the podcast last week and he had a great game plan. They were disciplined at BC really well prepared. Um, but Clemson goes into the locker room and they're as good a second half, uh, you know, alterations, fix things kind of team as you'll see in the country. Um, it's interesting. Like if you're a voter, I get keeping Clemson number one, I, I would keep Clemson number one, but I think there's an argument for moving Alabama up. I don't know if you agree. I mean, Alabama hasn't had that kind of moment and there are mitigating factors for Clemson, but I think there would be a little bit of justification for swapping them. I wouldn't put them below Ohio state, either one of them, but I could see why some people flipped it because Alabama has been cruising and Clemson did have a dogfight. Alabama was my preseason pick to win the national championship. I have not changed anything uh, up to this point. I thought it was a good outing for the Alabama defense. They beat Mississippi state 41, nothing. I, I don't know what that tells us because if you look at the trend lines for Mississippi state and their offense, they've gone down every single week. Uh, it's just not been very good, but to hold them to 200 yards of offense, this is an Alabama defense that had not been playing at the highest level. Uh, so maybe there's some improvement there. And even without Jalen Waddle, Alabama's just got so much offensive potential variety, ways to get the ball to their best players. I think they're going to be really, really tough to beat. Yeah, I don't disagree. Um, let's just say this. Mississippi State Future. sucks. Future. They suck. Oh, my God. Um, but I, in terms of what we can take for Alabama, yeah, I thought it was interesting to see how their passing game still clicked without Waddle, and I, I think that's interesting and obviously telling in terms of going forward. But they just look – they look very complete. Um, and I think we could talk about Ohio State a bit as looking in that realm of – completeness of being balanced on both sides of the ball. But when Alabama's defense shows up like they did on Saturday, yeah, you watch and you wonder who can beat this team. And I think anyone who would have faced Alabama yesterday probably would have had a hard time. Well, let, let's look at what Alabama's got left. All right. Um, again, this is an odd season. It's, it's not what we typically uh, deal with, but it seems like they've kind of gone through the worst of it. Uh, they've got LSU next weekend. LSU's terrible. LSU's They're going to destroy LSU. Uh, LSU's, LSU in two weeks. I'm sorry, two weeks. LSU's one of the yeah. worst teams in the SEC right now. They've got Kentucky at home. There's no way Kentucky's beating them. They've got Auburn at home. Auburn maybe woke up a little bit. Uh, they, they beat LSU quite handily Saturday. But I just – I think that's a little bit of fool's gold because of how bad LSU's playing right now. Like – I just don't see how Auburn can offensively keep up with Alabama. And then they, they've got Arkansas at the end. Alabama's going 10-0. and 0. And then they're going to play probably, probably Georgia again, although we'll talk about this in the next segment, but they could play Florida, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe just in terms of matchups, Florida might be a tougher matchup. But, like, I'm sorry. Like, I, I just don't think Alabama's losing. Yeah, I don't see it in the regular season. I mean, weird things happen against Auburn, certainly. But um, they're they're cruising. Um, and if you're Alabama, you almost can look at the next four or five games as like, hey, let's get tuned up even more. Because there are, these are 
exhibition games almost against LSU. I mean, this LSU defense against Alabama's offense is, is going to be just disaster zone. Um, so thought about last night with Ohio state, we're shooting a video after the night all ended. And you think about Ohio state being peerless in the big 10 and wondering who's going to give them their best game. And you realize it's their best game is going to come in January. And I think Alabama is the same way. I think there are two teams in the country that can beat Alabama. It's Clemson and Ohio state and, you know, vice versa for all three. Yeah. By, by the way, like at this point, do we start the clock on Mike Leach at Mississippi state? In terms of what, like, because he's going to just alienate everybody and go one and nine and make it feel like it's, it's an impossible task or because he's going to be like, screw this. I'm out of here. Well, I don't know which ones he's more likely. I, I don't know. I don't know where he would go, but and I pointed this out in, in the misery index and I've pointed it out elsewhere, but this is not like a Mississippi state program that had been bad. That was like rebuilding, you know, they weren't great last year, but they still got to a bowl game. They still beat Ole Miss. They still were respectable against good teams right now. I, I don't know who they're going to be. And this team, yeah, like this Mississippi state team from yesterday, for example, is, I mean, dramatically worse than any, team any game that Joe Moore had had and no, no question yeah so I don't know what will happen there but uh obviously that's a decision off into the future John Cohen the athletic director of Mississippi State if he got this one wrong he's he's going to end up paying with his job as well all right let's get back into the top 25 Notre Dame number four they did not uh, have any problems really with Georgia Tech 31-13 again a tune-up for them their season is going to be defined by what happens next week with Clemson. We'll talk about that game later in the show. Again, I thought this was a fairly pedestrian performance for Ian book. I mean, he didn't have to do too much. It was comfortable most of the time for Notre Dame, but I, I just sort of wonder like, why, why is he not taking the next step this year? I think it's the surrounding skill talent they're missing big body receivers, mixing next level receivers and skill players. You know, I, I watched the game yesterday and, and bits and pieces. And, and my thought as I was considering how we talk about Notre Dame was, I think there's an easy path to be negative about their lack of explosiveness and that they look a little bit pedestrian. It's certainly true. And, and I think there's a chance that Clemson, if not a good chance that Clemson um, thwarts or, or kind of exposes that and brings it fully into the open. I think they've done a good coaching job this year getting to this point. And not saying that they shouldn't have won every single one of these games. But I think Kelly and his staff are doing a good job of making the most of what they have. Because I don't think this is a perfect team uh, by any stretch. I don't think it's a team that's capable of going unbeaten, certainly beating Clemson twice. But I think they've maximized what they've got going on. And if the plan and the game plan against even a Georgia Tech is to kind of like, let's be safe and secure and not take huge chances and just kind of roll over the team that we have an edge over in talent, that's a recipe for winning. Then Notre Dame is getting it done. I don't think it's conducive to finishing the top four, but I think they're going to beat every team except for Clemson, I think, in the regular season because of this kind of antiquated play-in-the-mud kind of football style. Well, speaking of playing in the mud, number five, Georgia, 14-3 to against Kentucky. Stetson Bennett back out there, which suggests that just, frankly, nobody, including JD, JT Daniels, has beaten him out for that starting job in practice. Uh I don't know if Georgia can beat Florida playing this way. Um, it's not pretty to watch. It's not fun to watch. 
It's not very dynamic, but this is Georgia and it's good enough. Most of the time, I I sort of wonder if they kind of need to take a loss next week to just sort of shake things up because man, I mean, you just watch them and I got, I don't know. I I don't think their ceiling is all that high. That's just the impression I come away with. Yeah. I, I, you just wonder, I mean, Kirby smart as much as any coach in the sec or any coach that we can think of off the top of our head, just like, we'll stick with whatever works. Like he'll like he'd run a, a, the same play 65 times. If they win seven, six, it's just this mentality, which is, you know, pretty smart. Just win the game and go home. But it's 14, three against Kentucky. Stetson Bennett's thrown two picks. They're barely throwing the football at all. Um, I don't know what, yeah. Like they playing Florida in the week. I don't know what the, what the plan is. Like, you're not going to shut out Florida. You're not going to hold Florida to a field goal, even as good as your defense is. It's just not going to happen. So what's the game plan when it gets 14-10 in the second quarter and, and Florida's driving? I, I don't know. It's good enough to be Kentucky. It's it's really curious about what Georgia's going to look like this week. And again, if they beat Florida, what they'd look like if they want to beat Alabama in December. Let's uh, move to the next tier of the poll. And I think this is where it starts to really – get interesting because you've got Cincinnati right there and they just destroyed Memphis 49 to 10. I mentioned it last week on the pod. Cincinnati's had that game circled for some time. Mm -hmm. They lost to Memphis twice at the end of last season and boy, did they deliver a a beat down. Now look, some of that is Memphis's defense. I mean, they made Desmond Ritter look better than he is probably, but when you hold Memphis to 10 points, that's uh, a really strong endorsement of your defense. Cincinnati undefeated, moving up the pole. This is a year where, we'll, and we'll talk about the Big 12 in a minute, but the Big 12 seems to be kind of disqualified from the playoff. It does not seem like the SEC is likely to get two in. It seems like Ohio State is going to dominate and take out the rest, any other contenders in the in the Big 10. We'll see about the Pac-12. They start next week, but – I mean, there may be a a fourth playoff spot available for a team like Cincinnati in this particular year. And that was a very good impression, I think, for for voters, for playoff committee members to to look at that game and say, man, this Cincinnati team is kind of for real. Yeah, I mean, they poured it on. And I think they do that for a reason because, A, they hate Memphis and, B, because they realize that a lot of people aren't watching the actual games. But if you look at that score, 49-10 against Memphis, I think you get an idea of how much they dominated clearly one of the top defenses in the country. I mean, no doubt about it. We wrote last week about Cincinnati getting to the top four. I don't think it's an implausible scenario whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, look at the last two weeks combined against Memphis and SMU, two of the best offenses in the, in the league, maybe in the country. And it's 91 to 23 combined score. Like that's strong. That's really strong. And and you, if, if you want to start looking at resumes, I mean, they've beaten army, SMU Memphis, it's one of the better resumes out there right now. Well, like let's like do the comparison against the like contenders, their fellow contenders for number four. Um, yeah, you could have Georgia with two losses with a case, certainly, if that's how it plays out. But Cincinnati's overall resume is going to best, you know, if they're unbeaten, the second best team from the ACC. I mean, if Notre Dame doesn't beat Clemson once, 
I don't know if Notre Dame's got a better strength of schedule than Cincinnati in a year where they can't play those typical non-conference games against the Pac-12, uh, you know, Big Ten teams, Pac-12 teams. Um, Pac-12 in general, if they have if Oregon's six and zero and Cincinnati's eleven and zero, I don't know how you could possibly put Oregon ahead of Cincinnati, regardless of the fact they played those Power Five games. So, it's one of the great subplots of the next two months for Cincinnati, and I think they're going to have a shot at it, but they've got to run the table. Oh, there's no, there's no question. They, they can't, they can't have a loss to, to get in. Um, let's move on to the big 12 since we mentioned it. Uh, Oklahoma state, they don't drop a ton in this week's poll. They drop, you know, half dozen slots, but uh, they lost to Texas big win for Texas. Things had not been good around the Texas program of late. Uh, they've lost a lot of recruits, Guys decommitting, a little bit of a crisis there. So that was a very important win for Texas, just from a just from a standpoint of 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 not going too far down the the, the drain here, just with the overall mentality of 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 their guys and everything around Tom Herman. It can get it can get very toxic in a hurry. Uh, they they beat Oklahoma State forty one thirty four in overtime, so that that. I think raises their spirits a little bit. I think Oklahoma state's got to be quite disappointed about the end of that game. There were some penalties, some very bad penalties on their part that uh, gave Texas some, some second chances, some opportunities. There was a pass interference call in overtime. So look, we, we had said we didn't know how good Oklahoma state was. Um, And actually in some ways they, they played fairly well, but I just think we now have a picture of the big 12 that, that, Oklahoma's probably the best team. Yeah. No, they are. They'll run the table. Um, the Oklahoma State was minus four in turnovers. Um, had several opportunities to, to win this game. You know, obviously felt, feels like that possession over time was the last of, of several missed chances. Um, it's a, it's a, not a fatal blow, like you said, for the Big 12, but it certainly puts them on the verge of being eliminated as a, as a conference. Um, the only hope now is Oklahoma State runs the table ends with one loss. And even then it's going to be dicey because the reputation of the conference overall is, is pretty spotty at this point. There's no doubt. And then you look at Kansas state, they lose by 27 points at West Virginia. Kansas state had been kind of a, a team that looked like it had some momentum. And then all of a sudden Neil Brown, uh, I mean, that, that was a really complete performance by West Virginia. Neil Brown's doing a heck of a job at West Virginia to, to get them to four and two. But uh uh, that's kind of where, uh, where where things are at right now. So um, let's uh, go back to the Big Ten, Ohio State and Penn State. This is a game that historically has been, you know, fairly competitive. I, Oklahoma State's never really gone in and just kind of manhandled Penn State, but but they did this time. They did this time. It was a really thorough, really – I think even more than the score indicated 38, 25 win over Penn state. Um, another like terrific performance by Justin Fields, 28 to 34, four touchdowns. We, we mentioned earlier, Ohio state's one of the few teams that's got a chance to, to beat Alabama. Uh, but what did it tell you about them that they went in and, and really, really took it to Penn state? Yeah, they controlled the game. Um, there were moments when Penn State was in striking range, but they never felt like they were threatening Ohio State. Um, 
I think it solidifies the idea and, and well, maybe we can talk a little bit about what else happened in the conference on Saturday. I mean, there's no one in this conference that's going to sniff them. Um, would I like to have seen this game played in a whiteout? Yeah. And could it have altered the complexion of the game? I mean, theoretically, I think even Urban Meyer said like playing at Penn State on a Saturday night is like a seven point swing to the home guys. So maybe this game could have been different, but no, Penn State's got extreme talent. I mean, this is like one of the top 10, 12 recruiting programs in the country every single year under James Franklin. They rarely miss out on, on top 10 to 12 classes. But it's like they were, they were playing at – sorry about that. It's like they are playing at three-quarter speed against Ohio State, honestly. It's like they weren't even playing the same game at times. Like Ohio State was like an NFL team in terms of their speed and athleticism. So that's obvious and evident to me. And, and clearly, if you can beat Penn State – by 13 and really just kind of dominate. I don't know who's going to beat you if you're Ohio state. Yeah. Well, I, I think now we're seeing in the big 10, I mean, uh, Michigan ends up losing to Michigan state. You've got Purdue is two and O Indiana's two and O Wisconsin is, is not playing. I, I should also mention Northwestern there two and O you know, Wisconsin right now, who knows what their immediate future is because of the COVID outbreak they're dealing with. Uh, they've got now over 20 positive tests. They may not be able to play next week as well. We'll just kind of have to see. Uh, they'll make that decision early uh, in this coming week. I, I think the path is, is, is pretty clear beyond the fact that, that they're just good. Like if you wanted to concoct a scenario where maybe Michigan is, is great, you know, where maybe Michigan, this is the year at all, comes together for Jim Harbaugh, which a lot of people thought uh, maybe after that week one win over Minnesota. I think now we know that's, that's, that's a fiction. That's not happening. Um, Tell me your is, thoughts on Harbaugh. Uh, and you wrote about this yesterday in case people missed it. What are your, what is losing to Michigan state 27, 24 tell you about Harbaugh and his tenure? Well, it, it just tells me that, that we're kind of at, at the fork in the road because Jim Harbaugh's only got this year and next year left on his contract. And, you know, I know that Ward Manuel, the athletic directors talked about, oh, we, you know, we'd love to have him forever. We'd like to sign him for life, whatever term they use. The reality is it's so unusual for a college football coach at this level to be at the point where he's only got a year or two left on, on their contract. That just doesn't happen. Usually just for recruiting people, always have four and five years left on the deal. And you know, with Harbaugh, there's always been this, this thought that, oh, well, maybe he'll go back to the NFL, whatever. And he never did. Well, now, like, we're in year six, and they're just not making any progress. I, I think this is the worst loss of his tenure, of his entire tenure, because it's to a team that is, is basically rebuilding. I know it's Michigan State. I know it's a rival. It's a good name. But th this Michigan State team is not, is not good. Uh, it, it's a rebuilding team. The roster was, was kind of gutted. Mel Tucker's in year one. There's just no expectations of, of Michigan State right now. And the fact that Michigan just kind of did what they always do, which is they just kind of turtled offensively when it mattered, couldn't finish drives, all that stuff, you know, which is what they've done for six years now. It, it, like we know what the Jim Harbaugh experience is. And I, I, I'm not saying it's bad. Like it's not embarrassing, but it's not what, it's not what this is supposed to be. So I just sort of wonder if both sides is at some point pretty soon here, just say, we tried, it's, it's time to do something else. 
Yeah, it's it's not the it's not the most painful loss of his tenure. Not even the most painful loss to Michigan State, um, but it's the worst one. I completely agree with you. It's the worst loss, most embarrassing loss of his tenure. So that's Michigan right now, two weeks into twenty twenty. Yeah, he was a three touchdown favorite. I mean, typically the games that that they've lost have been to ranked teams, have been to good teams where they just can't get over the hump. Losing is a three touchdown favorite over a team that lost to Rutgers uh, last week. I, I, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, North Carolina, Virginia. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we're sitting here in North Carolina talking about them as a top 10 team, a top, I think they were up to number six. And now they're, they're at the at bottom of the top 25. I'm not even sure they deserve that. They get beat by Virginia. What is, uh, what has taken a wrong turn for North Carolina? Yeah, they're just a, a really inconsistent team. Um, and they've been inconsistent, like, except for NC state, they've been inconsistent within games, even ones that they've won um, all season. Um, and yesterday you saw it. They, it was tight in the second. All of a sudden, it was 41-20, I think. Yeah, they were down three touchdowns, like, yep. Yeah. Um, and then they crawl back into it. You know, they're really good. They're, they are like a 10 to 12, number 10 to 12 team in the country at times for like 18 minutes at a time during a game. And then at other times, they're in the bottom half of the ACC. So it's disappointing for North Carolina, but they're really just a, a victim of the hype. They didn't ask for it. They didn't. You know, they weren't the ones that were tweeting in the second half of the military bowl about how great they were going to be in 2020. Um, I think we put the cart ahead of the horse a little bit. They're a young team um, and the young teams are going to struggle. I think they're going to go out and win, you know, three of five to end the season, at least, if not go four and one. So they'll have a fine season. They're just, they're not a, a, a playoff contender, but they never should have been viewed that way in the first place. Last game I want to mention from Saturday involves another top 10 team, and that is Florida. They beat Missouri 41-17. I only care because of what happened at the end of the first half where there was a, a all-out brawl between Florida and Missouri. Punches thrown. Dan Mullins in the middle of it, and after everyone goes to the locker room, he, he runs back out on the field like a wrestler and tries to get the crowd pumped up. Then he shows up at the press conference with a Darth Vader uh, costume, <laughs> which uh, was weird enough on its own. It has been quite a few weeks for, for Dan Mullen. I, he, uh, you know, first of all, he, he says they got to pack the swamp after the loss to A&M. Then all of a sudden there's a COVID outbreak on his team. Then all of a sudden he gets COVID. Then he comes out last week and complains about not being able to practice on election day coming up this week. And now this, um, I could make an argument that the SEC should – hand him a significant fine and, and perhaps even a suspension for his antics in this game. I don't think they will, but when you have a brawl like that and then you come back out on the field and do the pro wrestling thing, that is a bad look for college football. I think Mullen is a little bit um, out of his mind right now, a little bit like that's just not uh, the right thing to do. You're trying, you need to sort of calm things down if, if you're going to be a leader and he seemed to want to juice him up. What did you make of that? And am I making too much of, of Mullen's behavior? No, I think, I think you can almost tie a little bit back to what you said about wanting to pack the swamp. I think that's really important to Mullen. 
the idea that he has a home field advantage at Florida. So when he goes back out and he's like puffing up the crowd, like Vince McMahon, I think there's a part of it that is like, Hey, you're never going to get loud. Like when do you, why are you guys not screaming loud? Like I need the swamp to be the swamp. Um, there's an aspect of it. That's that, but in general, like the behavior from start to finish from him um, and the players. And, you know, I don't think we should say that Drinkwitz from Missouri is necessarily removed from this scenario or, or from having any sort of culpability. Um, the whole thing was an embarrassment, but I do think Mullen most of all needed to control himself a little bit better than that. It's just a bad, it's just a bad look. I mean, I don't, I know people don't really care about the optics too much right now, but I just think in general, you need to have better control of yourself. And I think the team will reflect that. And he lost control of himself. The the Darth Vader costume. I mean, dude, what are you doing? I mean, I know, like, (laughs) I, I know that sometimes we, we make fun of these coaches for taking themselves too seriously. And so I do appreciate the attempt to like lighten things up a bit, but just given everything that went down, like the Darth Vader, like, I'm sorry, that had to be intentional because Mullen knows he's taken some criticism the last few weeks. He knows. No. Yeah. I think so too. I think he's, he leans into it. I'm okay with that. Um, Make yourself out to be the villain. That's cool. Um, I think, yeah, for sure though. He, that was not, uh, that was not, Oh, what do you guys got that I can wear to this press conference right now? I think that was sitting in his coach's office. Are we in agreement that the sec is not going to do anything? Hmm. To the coaches, you mean? Yeah, I think, the, you know, reprimand, whatever, but I don't Yeah, think- I think you'll get a reprimand. Yeah, exactly. The players, I don't know. Are they going to – are the players you got ejected going to miss? The- I think there's going to have to be suspensions. I mean, punches thrown seems to me like you can't let that go. Yeah, which I mean, players and all that stuff, like that's going to be really key for the SEC to figure out. Yeah, that's going to be difficult. Um, yeah, but I think you're right. There's going to be a reprimand, but they're not going to – they're not going to find anybody. They're not, certainly not going to suspend anybody. All right. Well, uh, we're going to be joined next by Doc Holliday, the head coach of the Marshall Thundering Herd. They are undefeated. They are rising in the Amway coaches poll. Looking forward to getting his take on this season so far. Inside the Amway coaches poll from USA Today Sports. Your team's nutrition is of the utmost importance, yet you often ignore your own. Stop ignoring your gut health. Drink tasty on the go and by Neutralite Kombucha yeah Drink Mix to put your system in peak performance. This convenient kombucha style powder drink contains vitamin B6, vitamin B12, apple cider vinegar, and 500 CFU per milliliter of probiotic blend to give your gut the good bugs to help keep you feeling great anywhere, anytime. Stay tuned after the podcast to learn the benefits of gut health, probiotics, and the effects on your overall health from Chief Formulator Dr. Jennifer Chang, Ph.D. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and the product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now, back to Inside the Amway Coaches Poll with Dan Wolken and Paul Meyerberg. Pleased to be joined now on the Inside the Amway Coaches Poll podcast by coaches in his 11th season at Marshall, the Thundering Hurt are 5-0 and right now, up to number 15 in the Amway Coaches Poll. Doc Holliday, thanks for joining us. What has been the uh, key to you guys' season so far? It's been really impressive to watch you rise up the rankings every week. 
Well, thanks. You know, I just, uh, I like this team a lot. You know, I said early on that, uh, you know, the one thing, everything is so different this year and you got to go day to day. And from that first meeting that we had, I said, guys, we got we got control what we can control. You know, there's a lot of things that are happening out there right now. We have no control over. Uh, we got control. Uh, one thing we can control is go to work every day and become a better football team. I like this team a lot. I also told them I think the most important thing with what we're dealing with is we got to have great leadership and we got to have uh, make sure that this team takes ownership in the team and hold each other accountable because what we're dealing with once we walk out of this building. So fortunate uh, up to this point, you know, we were a talented team that's uh, playing at a really high level and uh, we just got to make sure we keep preparing to make sure that happens. You are playing a redshirt freshman quarterback this year, a kid by the name of Grant Wells, in-state kid from from West Virginia. Uh, what, what's the story with him? Uh, how'd you end up getting him to Marshall and, and what gave you the confidence that he could play quarterback for you as a retro freshman? Well, you know, we had him in camp, you know, for about three or four years there as he was a really young kid. And to be honest, he was not a real heavily recruited player. But, uh, you know, we saw that he had – he could make all the throws. He had all the intangibles. As you know, the, at the quarterback position, the intangibles are probably the most important thing. And, you know, he was here and had a spring ball. Of course, we didn't have one this past year. But he came. He graduated early uh, from GW High School. Had him for one spring. Uh, saw that he had the skill set. I think the one thing, Dan, you know, we, we're we're pretty good around him. You know, our offensive line's a veteran group that's uh, provides a lot of leadership. You know, got the Player of the Year in the conference from a year ago at tailback. Uh, got our tight ends, our receivers back intact. So, you know, I think we're surrounding him with good players where he just got to make, you know, great decisions and do what we ask him to do. And uh, now he's, he's got great leadership skills. I think the biggest thing is our, our team respects him. You know, they respect him. And I think the one thing you worry about with a young quarterback, especially being a freshman, is, you know, how do you react to adversity? You know, and uh, we had a little bit of adversity at Appalachian State game early on. Uh, through his first pick, but he reacted extremely well, came back and played well, and you know, nothing seems to bother him. You know, he just goes and plays and, and is playing right now at a really high level. Doc, you had multiple games canceled, postponed, rescheduled during the regular season. I'm curious, we've had coaches on who have talked about the difficulty of making sure their guys stay centered and focused, but you're just not sure going into a week, hey, are we going to play Saturday? What's been your trick for handling it and, and making sure that after that extended break, your guys come back playing just as well as they were before? Well, I don't think there's any question. We had that one, we had a three-week break there from the time we played App State until we went to Western, you know, and that's that's hard. But, you know, I think our kids, again, you know, I think they're a mature group, you know, that understands. I mentioned earlier about control and we can control. And, you know, the one thing we can't control is go to work every day to become a better football team. And I think we've done that. Uh, still got a long ways to go, but they're just proud of the team, the way they've handled all the adversity and everything that's gone along with it. Has it changed the way that you practice, Doc? Like if – I know you can't predict that you're going to have three weeks, right? But when you see that you're going to have extra time, does it alter your practice schedule or the, the amount of contact you have in practice? Does it make it feel like we're like sometimes like August or bowl prep instead of a, a game week prep? Well, you know, I don't like I say there's no playbook to, you know, to, to go back and look into what you how you handle a three week break right in the middle of the season. Yeah, it doesn't normally happen. But I think the one thing that you, that I've learned is is when you have breaks like that and you're not quite sure what to do, you go back to fundamentals. You know, we just kind of go back to the first day of camp, so to speak, uh, and just work on blocking and tackling all the fundamentals. I, I think the other thing has been critical to us is you know, normally you get your ones and your twos and maybe a spare ready to go play. But with what we're dealing with right now, I mean, we're, we're getting as many young players work as we can and having those extra days, and those extra time during those breaks, 
you know, we spend a lot of time with our third group, you know, especially I think where the, where you lose some kids can really affect you on special teams. You know, you lose guys and, you know, if you don't work those threes and those down the line guys, I mean, you get to a point where, you know, it's easy to go cover a kickoff. Well, you got to learn how to do that. I mean, there's fundamentals and techniques that are involved in the speed zone, the hard head zone, throw by techniques, everything that's involved that you got to teach those young kids how to do. So, you know, we spend a lot of time, you know, developing more just than the ones and twos and trying to get some threes ready to go. And I think that's helped us to an extent. Doc, you're now over a decade at Marshall. You're, you're from West Virginia. I know you love the job you have. Early in your tenure, you, you were very successful. Then you hit a little bit of a dip. 2016, you had a, probably your first bad season there. Now you've been able to get back to, to where you're, you're trending toward top of Conference USA. Uh, what, what was the key just in terms of, of surviving a, a little bit of a dip? Did you have to change anything within the program to, to get back to where you thought it should be? Well, I think the big, biggest thing is don't flinch. You know, just, uh, you know, you know we, we had a lot of success and, you know, we, we understood what it takes to, to win and do all those things. And, you know, we had that one bad year, as you mentioned, and been, if we happen to be lucky this year, we're going to four straight bowls if, if we get to this year. But I think the biggest thing is just, uh, you know, stay true to what you understand that's the most important thing to go win football games and, you know, developing players and recruiting the right kids and, and doing all those things. So we's kind of got, you know, we just got back to, uh, it's not like we waved a magic wand. I mean, we, we understood what it took to be successful and just got back to really emphasizing the important things it takes to, to, you know, play for championships and do those things. You, you mentioned recruiting the right kids. You've had a lot of success at Marshall recruiting the state of Florida. Uh, you worked for Urban Meyer at Florida uh, for several years. You, you obviously developed a lot of uh, connections within those communities. Uh, is that still a huge part of your formula that you, you want those Florida kids to, to come up to Huntington, West Virginia, uh, that, that you feel like there's a good pipeline there for, for your program? Well, no question. I mean, I started recruiting Florida back in 1979, back when – I think when I first went down to Florida in 79, there was two other coaches recruiting down to South Florida. There was a guy named Elliot Uzelak from Michigan and a guy named Gene Dock was from Iowa State. Nobody else even recruited down there. So, you know, you know, the ties go way back. You know, I think the critical thing in, in recruiting is trust. You know, I think all those kids from the, the West Virginia, the NC State, to the Florida days that were actually recruited down there all those years, you know, understand that if they come to Marshall or wherever I've been, that, that we're going to develop them as players or they're going to graduate. And uh, so, and, and the other thing is too, is in recruiting, I mean, you just, you know, I don't get hung up on stars. I get hung up on guys that got big old hearts that love football, you know, cause I thought when I went to Florida, I thought, you know, it's going to be the easiest job in the world. You put that big gator on your chest, you walk in there and all those five stars, you know, want to come running. But you know, at the end of the day, you, know, you got to find out uh, a lot of those guys when you when you deal with that many great players is is football is smoke and dope more important than winning championships is you know make great decisions and all those things so and I think there's so much that goes into recruiting but I think at the end of the day you got to have guys in areas that you recruit that you can trust uh, so you know exactly what you're getting in that player and as I said before if they got big old hearts and love football you got a shot. Doc, you were had a team in the midst of the college football playoff conversation back in 2014, the first year that we had the format. Um, I think you guys started, I believe you were 11 and 0 and you had a kind of a classic overtime game that unfortunately you guys lost, I think Western Kentucky. Right. Um, so this is your second go round and it obviously uniquely different compared to 2014. Um, are you talking to your team at all about the possibilities of how the season could play out? I know you're probably more focused on the week to week, but, um, even maybe from your own perspective, do you know that you're in the thick of this thing and, and have a chance at having 
one of the great seasons, at least for the FBS history of Marshall football. Well, I think I think you, you know you got to you got to talk a little bit about the big picture, but the kids also have to understand that you better play, you better take one, play one game at a time, you know. And at the end of the day, I think you you got to talk to these kids because they're they're reading the same thing. They're fifteenth in the country, whatever you are, and but they need to understand this. You know, the most prepared team always wins, and it's always about preparation. And we have a really good football team, you know. I, I tell them all the time, you know what? Every every weekend, uh, somebody's gonna get beat that shouldn't. All right. And he's got to make sure it's not us. And that's all about preparation and going to work every day and, you know, leadership, uh, you know, toughness and all those things, you know, continuing. And I think, I think the biggest message I get, guys, we got a standard we have to play up to. All right. And I told him, I tell him every week, guys, it takes a week to win a game. You know, I mean, it takes every a week of preparation to line up on Friday and Saturday and go play at the highest level. And uh, so we work really hard about being consistent with what we do. Uh, work very hard at being prepared to play to that standard every week, and that's never going to change. When people talk about coaches from uh, the state of West Virginia, obviously Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher, uh, they get a lot of attention. You are from West Virginia as well. What is it about the state of West Virginia, the culture that has led to so many guys succeeding in, in college football coaching? Is This is not a big state. You know, I worked with, with Nick. Nick was a secondary coach, and I was coaching at West Virginia years ago in the 70s, and he was he was there coaching the secondary. But, yeah, I think it goes back to the work ethic. You know, people in West Virginia grow up tough, a lot of them, and, you know, it, it, it just, they, they understand that there's no secrets to being successful. It's you got to get up every day and you got to go to work. And I think, that's, you know, I think that's being successful for anything you do, you know, whether it's coaching or working in the mines or whatever you do. I mean, you get up early and you go to bed late and you outwork people, and people that have that do that – uh, have a chance of being successful. What was saving like back in? Too. Oh yeah, Rich Rod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been a lot of them. I mean, I think uh, what Lou Holtz at one time is from West Virginia. So there's been uh, you know an awful lot of you know coaches from West Virginia that have been successful. What What was Nick like back in those days? You know what? It was. I don't know if you have time to tell a story here or not, <laughs> but uh, of course. I, I remember about Nick, and I can't remember, it was 78 or 79. It's been a while back. So I remember we had a guy, I had a G8 named Frankie Condino, and I remember I, like it was yesterday, and Nick was sitting in his office, and of course at that time you had no, you didn't have the computers, you didn't have all that stuff. So what you had to do is you drew up every formation or every play, you had to draw them up on pieces of paper, and he took those, I can't remember what it was, you cranked those things out, and they, the blue ink and all that put on it. But I remember Nick was sitting there, and he had a cup of coffee sitting there, and I'll never forget, he had all these, all these passes drawn up on, his, on these sheets, and Frankie Condino was a GA for us. So he came in, he threw the keys to Nick. He'd use his car for something, hit his cup of coffee, and went all over his sheets of paper, just destroyed his, destroyed his play, his pass uh, concepts and everything that he was drawing up. And I remember he exploded. And that being, hey, that's, uh, I remember that like it was yesterday. But uh, that was just one thing I remember. But he was an excellent coach, tremendous coach. And we had a lot of great coaches on that staff uh, years ago under Frank Signetti, who's Kurt's dad is now James Madison. And, and just to touch briefly on, on your time with Urban, I mean, that was a really remarkable period in the history of college football, remarkable team and, and remarkable time uh, in terms of, of you know, winning the SEC, winning national championships. What, what was that experience like uh, for you? And, and what did you carry forward from that as, as you became a head coach? Well, you know, I worked for Don Neal for about 20, 21 years there. And then, of course, left and went to for five and went to Florida. I only had three jobs. It was only three jobs I ever had wow. uh, as an assistant. But, you know, the one thing I remember about Urban was, you know, I, I had zero issues working for Urban because he just, he expected you to do your job, you know, and do it well. And, uh, but I, I also remember that, that Urban from day one, hey guys, this is a personnel driven game. 
you know, you got to have players. And that's so the recruiting part of it's where it all starts. And of course, I learned that from Don years ago with recruiting and developing players. But it is, uh, Urban was big on recruiting. Uh, he was big on it being a personnel driven game. And he was big on developing players, you know, from, uh, you know, it's one thing to get all those great players, but it's another thing to develop them and getting them play extremely hard for you and that type of thing. So I thought he was did a tremendous job of doing that. Well, you've done an excellent job of it uh, over the years at Marshall. And just congratulations on the start uh, to this season up to 15th in the Amway Coaches Poll. And keep it going. Well, thanks, guys. Let's keep it going. That's the plan. All right. Thanks. Doc Holiday from Marshall. Talk to you soon. Every day, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports. All right. Thanks to Doc Holiday from Marshall for joining us. Let's talk about the games coming up this week. The big one, Clemson at Notre Dame, it's the one that we've had circled before COVID. It's the one we had circled after COVID. And then, lo and behold, the most important player on either roster gets COVID, Trevor Lawrence, and will not be playing, according to Dabo Sweeney. Paul, I still think Clemson's going to win this game because I just think that they are at the level of program where – their talent is deep enough. Their quarterback, I, let me put it this way. I think it's a blessing for them that Lawrence, if he was going to get it, did it last week so that they could get DJ Uyunglele some snaps, get him some experience, get the first game jitters out. If he takes any sort of leap between game one or game two, I, I don't think we'll even know the difference. Yeah, I think the key for Clemson, this is a strange way to put it, but the key for Clemson losing is just turnovers. Um, I, there is, it's not like dispute the fact, there is a significant drop-off from Lawrence to DJ. DJ's a really good player. He's got an incredibly bright future, but there's an obvious drop-off there. Um, I think if Notre Dame can force turnovers, which they have, you know, they've shown the potential to do that. They're an opportunistic, opportunistic group. Um, they hold that edge. And they can kind of do what Boston College did in terms of churning out longer drives. Yeah, they can beat Clemson, but I just don't see it. I just don't see it. I don't think Notre Dame has the like just the speed on the edge or the talent at receiver to really stress Clemson and put them into a bind on either side of the ball. So, yeah, Clemson should win this game. And, and they really should win by 10 to 14 points. And I, I think that's – Yeah, I, I think they should. And I think Notre Dame is a really nice football team, like I said. But Clemson's got an edge in talent that is profound. I mean, even without Lawrence. So if they don't lose, they're not minus two in turnovers. I do think they win by 10 points because I do think there's there's a gap between these two programs. Well, that's interesting because Clemson, from what I'm seeing in the early lines, is only about a field goal favorite. So that's, uh, that's, that's quite a statement. I, I, we've seen these two teams play before. Uh, we saw him in a playoff game. We've seen him in a regular season game at Clemson that was a, a real classic uh, s- several years ago now. So not not sure that any of that's really applicable. Uh, but uh, I do know that that Notre Dame is – I mean, they've had to sort of measure themselves in a sense by how they match up with Clemson. And clearly in that, that playoff game a couple years ago, they were a few playmakers short. And I don't think, I think that that's- they've – like that's our most recent, sorry to interrupt you. That's our most yeah. recent example, right? Like look at the, 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 the path these two programs have taken in the years since I understand the cast has changes, the characters change, but what has Notre Dame done in that time or where have they improved or where have they changed in terms of their personnel? That makes you think that they match up better today than they did. 
against yeah, I, I don't think they have. It's not like, and look, like we're going to keep hammering this point, like for the rest of the season. One of the things I hate about the playoff is that we do talk about Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama a lot, you know, already early before we normally would. And doing so makes it seem like Notre Dame is just not good. Notre Dame is really damn good. I mean, they're one of, they're better than 122, 123 teams in the country. But there is a gap, and Clemson is a is they're not in that top three. Notre Dame, they're a, they're really good. They're just not elite in 2020, and and I think that makes a difference. Clemson is elite. Notre Dame is just not in that really select group. Second biggest game is the cocktail party, although it's not going to be as big of a party as it normally would be. Florida, Georgia, still playing the game in Jacksonville. Look, we talked about Georgia in the first segment, just sort of how uninspiring they are on offense. But, you know, until Dan Mullen beats Kirby Smart, then it's, it's something that they have not done. It's something that we have not seen. Is this the year it changes? What's the line on this? I don't see a line. I don't see a line yet. Georgia is so challenged offensively. Um, but it'll be keep easier Florida. for them to score. It'll be easier for them to score against Florida. Still, don't they need to hold Florida under 30. 24? Yeah. 30? Yeah. I mean, if look, if you tell me today Georgia's scoring 30 points, uh, yeah, I'm, that's that's a Georgia win, no doubt. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine this game being like 38-35 with either team. Um, they're so offensively challenged. I just don't know. I mean, if I had to pick, I might pick Florida just because I know Florida can move the football. Can they do it against Georgia? That, that's the question. But Georgia's like room for error because of this offense is so slim that I'm wary of picking them, even though I know that they own this series recently. And, and they are, again, talking about talent. They're more talented than Florida. Well, to me, the key for Georgia is just – the pressure that they can generate defensively. You saw it a little bit early in that Alabama game and they were effective with it for a time. They just couldn't sustain it. And eventually Mac Jones found some good matchups for, for Alabama, a one-on-one matchups that, that Alabama had the guys to win. And I think Florida, if they can do the same on a consistent basis, they, they will win the game. But, you know, can Georgia get that pass rush home enough to impact Kyle Trask? I, I think there's a good chance they can. But, yeah, it, it's, it, it's tough for me just seeing Georgia play last week. It's tough for me to pick them. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to waffle on this all week. But everyone knows what's at stake. It's for the SEC East. It's for a chance to play for the SEC. And, you know, if you play for the SEC, you play for the playoff. Game on Friday night that I think the whole uh, college football watching country is going to be honed in on is BYU at Boise State. It's really the game that for BYU is going to probably determine, almost certainly determine whether they go undefeated or not because they're 7-0. and Their last two games are against North Alabama and San Diego State at home. I mean, potentially they, they could lose to San Diego State, but, but this is it really for, for BYU. And – I mean, you just never see a situation like this. They played seven games. Boise State's played two. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, always, it's, it's bizarre to think about. Boise State, um, they, they've got double-digit wins. They look pretty good offensively. I mean, they 49-30 over Air Force. Uh, they played a very, I thought, clean, pretty clean game offensively. 
no turnovers, 459 yards of offense. I'm intrigued by this matchup. Like, I don't think BYU's a playoff contender. I just don't think their schedule's been strong enough. But it would be a hell of an accomplishment for them to, to go undefeated in the regular season. I just don't know if they can go into Boise and win. Yeah, it's, it's a tough trip. I have been in Boise for a BYU win. So I know that they technically can do it. And obviously their offense is rolling and they've got a, a QB who's becoming a household name. Boise's really good. The question for Boise is whether they're going to have their QB back. Hank Backmeyer did not play against Air Force, but Jack Sears, who's a grad transfer, he played really well. Um, but they're better with Backmeyer, obviously. I think that's a big deal. Um, it's a big game for Boise as well in terms of getting to the group of five title, you know, and getting into a New Year's Six Bowl. So there's a lot of meaning for this one in terms of reputation. So it's, yeah, one of the best group of five games of the year. I think that's fair to say. One of the best ones, and certainly at 945 on Friday night, I hope people watch because two really good teams. Another game between two ranked teams, Michigan going to Indiana. Indiana's been a great story off that upset of Penn State. They back it up with a win over Rutgers that uh, was – it was a, a solid win, although it could have gotten a little hairy if, if the most remarkable play I've ever seen had actually stood. I, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this podcast has seen the replay of Rutgers with about, what, eight or nine lateral attempts – getting into the end zone late. Of course, it gets called back because one of them was a forward pass. It also looked like maybe one of their guys was down. I don't know how the officials sorted that out. But uh, Indiana, to me, like they're, they're kind of for real. And I think this is a great measuring stick game for them because they're at home. They've got momentum. They've got confidence. Michigan's a little bit down. I really think Indiana, if they win this game, I mean, that – they've really become one of the big stories of the season. Yeah. If they win this game, um, they're going to look back on this. I mean, obviously barring a complete meltdown, it's one of the best seasons in, in program history. I mean, no exaggeration uh, because they are basically a short of a spot in the top 25 through two losses, which is probably all they would have against this schedule the rest of the way. So yeah, Indiana would be an incredibly, incredibly good story this has kind of been brewing for Indiana. I mean, they went eight and five last year. They came really close in Tom Allen's first two full seasons at making a bowl game, like one single play cost them six wins in each of those two years. So it's kind of validation of the program they've been building. And for Michigan, like if they lose at Indiana and they're one and two, I really won't know what to say, but I don't know if I would pick Indiana, but certainly can see them beating the Wolverines after what we saw on Saturday. All right, the other big story of this week coming up is the fact that we get the Pac-12 back, Pac-12 after dark, and we get the MAC. We get a little Wednesday night matchin, six games for the <laughs> MAC to debut on Wednesday night on a variety of uh, different platforms. That really adds a lot to the, uh, the whole viewing experience of college sports. I, I don't really know that – I know enough about the Mac at this point to, to break down any of those matchups, but I do think the PAC 12, let, we, let's talk a little bit about them starting off here. Um, we've had Clay Helton on the podcast earlier this season. They opened against Arizona state, really, really important game for, for USC, Oregon opening with Stanford. It's a Stanford program that has, I think been trending in the wrong direction, but historically that's, that's just a mega, mega matchup in the PAC 12 North. 
and of course, a little sense of humor, I think, from the Pac-12. UCLA opens with Colorado. Carl Durrell, who used to coach UCLA, now coaches Colorado, will make his debut. I think all these games are really interesting uh, just because, like, the Pac-12 has been kind of out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, they're interesting because we don't have, like, any idea what any of these teams No are frame of so, reference, none. Yeah, so that's interesting. It's November 7th, and we're like, we don't. Is Oregon good? I mean, who knows? I mean, is UCLA going to be trash again? Who knows? So I find that really interesting. It's like opening up, you know, a package from Amazon. Uh, you don't know exactly what's going to be inside. You have an idea. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Let's just be upfront about it. I don't think the Pac-12 is going to be a factor, like, in our overall national conversation about who's going to win the national championship. No, probably not. Yeah, but there's, there are several good teams in this conference. I mean, Oregon is very good. USC, very good. Utah is always as good. I think Stanford bounces back. Washington's good. I think Cal, um, across a normal 12-game season, would have had a, a really good shot at the top 25. So it's a good league, several good teams, but it's, it's really just like a, a secondary show in terms of the, the playoff in the national championship. Well, I think if Oregon had – in a normal year, they don't have guys opt out. Like, I think they would have been a factor, a playoff factor. And I still think they're favored to win the, the Pac-12. But, um, yeah, they, they do kind of feel like like a subplot. Any, any thoughts on the MAC coming back? Um, I think having them all on Wednesday night is a little bit excessive. Um, I like to see them spaced out a little bit. But, yeah, it's fun to have the MAC back. Buffalo is going to be good. Ohio in the East and Buffalo, Miami, Ohio, also in the East, three good programs uh, in the West. I think it's Toledo. Does anyone care? But I think Toledo is a team to beat in the Mac West. Oh, Jason Candle at Toledo, a guy who uh, has been on the radar of, of, of mine for, for quite a while. Good, bright young coach uh, there. So yeah, look, it's good to have football on Wednesday night. And that's about, uh, all I can say about all right. Is there any other uh, any other games next we catch your eye? I mean, Oklahoma State, Kansas State will be. Mm. I'm sure that'll be a good watch, it, but I don't know about particularly impactful. Doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah. I mean, it means nothing. So no, no, really not. I mean the the. Uh, no, no. Rutgers at nothing. Ohio State. Yeah, I think that'll be a, that'll be a blast. Um, Shiano going back to his stomping grounds. Ohio State by seventy. Rutgers is a really nice team um, in terms of where they've come in a really short amount of time. Reminds me a lot of Arkansas, except Rutgers has been worse. So good story for Shiano. I saw him in March. Unfortunately, then COVID happened. So uh, our conversation kind of uh, didn't make a lot of sense about 10 days later. But, <laughs> right, right. Um, he, uh, that's he like, the, that's like the Leonard job. Hamilton feature I, I had going for the uh, – <laughs> for the NCAA tournament last year. I had this, I went down to Tallahassee and spent time with Leonard Hamilton and was going to write this big Leonard Hamilton feature uh, because I thought Florida state was going to make a deep NCAA tournament run. And then it just, just vanished. Yeah. So I've got, uh, you know, 1800 words of, of Greg Shiano's plan uh, in, my, in a word doc, if anyone's interested, but <laughs> they're doing well, they're doing it. Like they're, they're ahead of the curve right now, but they're going to lose by a lot at Ohio state. All right, well, that's where we'll wrap the pod for this week. Thanks to Doc Holiday for joining us. Look forward to another week of games. And, of course, if you've not voted already, get out there and vote. 
this week. For Paul Meyerberg, I'm Dan Wolken from USA Today Sports. This has been the Amway Coaches, Inside the Amway Coaches Poll podcast. We'll talk to you guys soon. You've been listening to Inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Dr. Jennifer Truong, clinical researcher and nutrition investigator. Most people think of bacteria as germs that need to be eliminated, but there are many benefits that bacteria provide. Scientists are learning more every day about how bacteria in our gut enable our bodies to break down and digest food. There are over 500 types of bacteria in your gut. We refer to this community of bacteria living together as a microbiome. Research suggests this microbiome is tied to many conditions such as obesity. Microbiome research is cutting edge and we are just beginning to understand how it works for gut health. Your microbiome is composed of live organisms, many of which may provide health benefits. Kombucha is one way to get probiotics to support the microbiome. Traditionally, kombucha is a fermented tea that has been consumed for thousands of years, is rich in beneficial probiotics and antioxidants. And by Neutralite, kombucha is kombucha-style drink mixed with 500 million CFUs of probiotics, along with prebiotics fiber, plus vitamin B6 and B12 that packs a powerful punch to support gut health.